I'm Paul DeGarabedian, Senior Media Analyst for Comscore, and I'm here for Many Screens Big Picture with Adam Weisler. Adam is one of the most respected and experienced TV producers, writers, and talent bookers in the business with over 25 years of production experience, two Emmy Awards, plus an LA Area Emmy Award, a Golden Mike Award, Publicist Guild Awards nomination, and other honors to his credit. He is one of my dear friends. I've known him forever. Adam, we've worked together many times. Certainly, um, you know, you really helped me early on in my career by getting me on to your show, Extra. And I was really nervous at the time. You made me feel so comfortable. I was working with Mario Lopez at the time on on camera. So full disclosure, Adam and I have known each other. We go way back. So great to have you here. Thanks for being on the program. It's an honor and a pleasure to be here with you. And I love all all our past experiences on TV and off. And you've always been a great guest and a friend. So this is a real thrill to be here with you. Thanks for having me. I'm really honored to have you here. And I want to be a little different this time. I'm going to do something a little different because, you know, I usually ask people for their bio and normally it's like a one sentence thing and we'll just read it at the top of the show. But your bio actually created a perfect blueprint for a podcast host, new as I am to this, a blueprint for me to just go through your bio and we can talk about all these things And go into some detail with each thing, because I figure if it's important enough for you to put in your bio, I want to talk about it. So if you're cool with that, we'll we'll go straight from the bio and, uh, you know, we'll riff a little bit on the side, but let's let's go for it. So the first thing I want to talk about, and this is really after what I read at the top of the show, but the first thing I want to talk about is number one is that you've nurtured a very trusted relationship with top studios, music labels, and PR firms. And you've booked nationally exclusive interviews with A-list talent. So right. talk a little bit about that trusted relationship. Sure. Well, that's that's something I'm really proud of. And I learned early on in my career that we need to have relationships in town. We need to have relationships with um, publicity firms, with studios, with people that kind of the gatekeepers for the talent we want for our interviews for the TV show. So I learned that back even as an intern 25 years ago, that these relationships are something to kind of treasure and work on and people, they want to promote things, but they're only going to do it if we know we're going to, you know, not take, you know, we need to take care of them. We can't screw our relationships up. We need to have friendships. So that took a while, but I learned early on that, those relationships are pretty much the most important thing and the foundation for everything I do to get people on TV. Um, I started out in at KNBC, Channel 4 Newsroom, as an intern with David Sheehan, was my mentor. Of I grew up in L.A. I know very well of David Sheehan. Yeah, and I learned from first by osmosis just by watching him work and how he worked with some of the old school publicity firms, what those relationships meant um, with publicists, people like Pat Kingsley and... People that are in, you know, Paul Block, uh, who passed away a couple of years ago, some of the original, you know, gatekeepers and just what these relationships meant and how to be able to get this talent, we need to earn their trust. We need to, you know, show their clients, not necessarily, you know, uh, kowtow to them, but to develop a relationship where they trust me, they trust the show, they trust our segments and you develop a friendship over the years. 
and that fosters a lot of great relationships, a lot of great TV, a lot of great bookings in the years to come. So that, that took a little while, but I think I'd, I'd like to show early on that I could be someone that could be trusted and our pieces could be trusted. And that's been a daily, I wouldn't say fight, but a daily challenge and campaign of mine from the very beginning is to keep that up. If something's not going right on the air, or if I think we're going to lose a relationship due to some story, I'll go to a executive producer, I'll go to a boss, I'll go to someone and say, hey, you know what? This isn't the time to throw this into the story, into the script. We need to look at this. We're going to lose this relationship. And that's something, to me, those relationships are more important than one piece one day or one story. And so I've kind of lived by that rule. And I think it's helped me personally. It's helped whatever show I've been working for, which has been extra now for over 20 years. Um, so I think people have always trusted me, thankfully. And I know people have trusted you. It's 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 relationships and kind of our reputation is more important than anything. So right. I've and always we've both been doing this important. a really long time. And like they say, you can uh, it can take 20, 30 years to build and nurture your reputation, but one day to tear it all down. One misstep after 10, 20, 30 years, you see this all the time. So I think it's like a tightrope that you walk because not only are you dealing with the gatekeepers who are the ones making sure they're protecting their client or the star celebrity, whoever it may be, but you're also a gatekeeper. You're a buffer between them and your producers and the show, which is a, to me, I think one of the most valuable uh, skills to have is to be able to walk that tightrope where you want something interesting, innovative, exciting to share about. And you've worked with Katy Perry, Clint Eastwood, mm -hmm. Michael Douglas, Daniel Radcliffe, Celine Dion, Madonna, uh, so many people, Brian Wilson. And these are not people that are easily uh, or, or easy to get. And I think it's that trust factor where they look at and they see your name attached and they know they can trust you. Yeah. Well, thank you. And in the case of someone like a Katy Perry or a Brian Wilson, I'm out there on a shoot. I may be privy to seeing things that may be fun in the moment, but aren't meant to be shared with our audience. Um, or I may have a great conversation. I can tell maybe Brian Wilson didn't mean to say that, or it wouldn't be best to have that out there. So I protect him and then I keep the relationship going and I'll be able to sit down with Brian at his piano again and have another great experience uh, the next album. Right. And, and don't you think that, I mean, that's, that's an amazing thing. And you, again, you could burn that relationship very quickly if you don't know the nuance. I think what you do very well is you understand what Brian Wilson is all about. It's not just a name, not just a former beach boy. He's a person, a real mm -hmm, person. Mm -hmm. And by knowing his particular backstory and knowing, and we'll get into this a lot later, how much you love music and the history of music, musicians, and music, the creators yeah. of music and the musicians themselves and, and actors as well. These are all people who are very sensitive generally. Uh, and I don't mean like super sensitive, like you can't say the wrong word in front of them. I mean, sensitive that they're artists and they want to be protected not only by their people, but by you, because you're mm -hmm. the one putting that platform out there, giving them a chance to expand. And I just use someone who's not looking to exploit at all those individuals but expand on them expand on what they're all about yeah yeah well that, that, that's that's also the real pleasure in what i do to be able to actually have a role or part in that at all because they're they're the creative artistic people and the are the legendary people or the new artists that really should be heard and should be seen and i always viewed it as my job to kind of get that message out and kind of let them 
speak and play and be heard. And I don't one get want to get in the way of that. Two, turn them into something they're not or make them feel uncomfortable. And usually I'm generally really excited about their art and who they are. So I enjoy giving them that platform. And I would think too that when you talk to them, they instantly know that you're authentic. So for instance, if you're interviewing Johnny Marr or Morrissey, you know what the backstory is. And there's definitely a backstory there. So if you didn't know that, if you asked the wrong question, you could have somebody get up and storm out of an interview or make for an awkward moment or burn your relationship. So how important just to people coming up in the industry, is it to not just look at an interview as a one-time deal with that person, with the creative person, whether it be a star, a celebrity, or a musician, how important is it to really learn about what these folks are all about? Or is it just something because you naturally love music in that case or movies with actors uh, that you automatically know that? Or is it just sort of inherent? Is it baked into you, into your DNA? I think it's, I think it's both. And I think in, in my case, I've always loved music. I've always loved film, as I know you do, both things as well. And so it's something that, I, you know, grew up from the time I could read, probably reading music magazines and watching things on TV and having that knowledge just because I've been curious about that. But even to this day, if it's someone I've interviewed 10 times, I'll, the night before, still write, scribble down little notes to myself. I'll still go through what I want to talk to them about. I'll still go back and look at old interviews, especially if it's someone I care about and make sure I'm prepared. Even if I throw all that out the window, I'll go through the motions of doing it just so it all seems fresh. And I come off like I know what I'm talking about. It's just something I enjoy doing. I just interviewed um, the rock group Sparks, Ron and Russell Mayle, LA guys here in town have their 26th album. And I've interviewed them five or six times and loved them since I was a kid. And I stayed up late the night before, excited again and writing down my little notes and going back through my old records as if it was all fresh and new and <laughs> had the time of my life talking to those guys again. So it's something I do with pretty much every interview. It's just, it's How fun. I love that. I think that's really cool. I do you I see here that you know you discover new talent, particularly in the music world. Katy Perry, Nora Jones, Sam Smith, Fiona Apple, Jason Mraz, Ryan Bingham, and and many others. How does that happen? What's your process? In a way, you're a curator and a shepherd, right? So yeah, you're yeah. looking for things, and then you find you're looking for interesting music or talent to talk about do you just you're in your own life you're living your life you discover somebody like anora jones or fiona apple in your quest to get more music information into your life how do you go from that to being the first to interview some of the biggest names in music well i i love doing that that's what's been one of the best things i've done in my career and i try to pride myself in doing that is is Listening to every, pretty much everything that's ever sent to me from a uh, publicist, be it the smallest label or an indie publicist or a friend I once knew in the industry who sends me stuff, I'll at least take a few moments to listen and see if something's cool and worth their time. Um, and then I'll see something in a magazine or write up from someone. Usually it doesn't start with me. Usually there's someone out there. Maybe they'll do something in print first or I'll see something in recent years online um, or something cool. Someone on KCRW will play, but maybe they've yet to be on TV. Um, in the case of Fiona Apple, for example, I actually was there. I did the first TV interview with Fiona on the day she did her first radio broadcast on KCRW. So it was like a piggyback scenario. And that was a blast. 
that was a, uh, I was sent her initial uh, CD for that title album back when she was 18, I believe, maybe 17 when she first came out. And thought, oh, this is really cool. I know anything about her at all. I heard, yeah. I heard, I think a song and said, oh my God, we got to do something with this girl. That's when I was still at channel two and I jumped on it and I was told, you know what? She's actually doing her first radio broadcast at KCRW. Why don't you come on down that day? And we were there with the crew. I was there in the room when she sang Never Is A Promise, all these great songs right in front of me, blew me away. She came next door and I did her first TV interview right at the beginning, all that. And it was a blast. Sim similar story wow, with Mary Jones at the House of Blues and just things like that. I just, and it happens with bands and stuff like that all the time. I can't do everybody. There isn't enough time in the right. day or there aren't enough camera crews and, or ways of doing it, but I always try and I've had some great experiences that way, just trying to get people first. Cause not for the, I do. Well, yes, I do love the joy of being able to say, Hey, I was there first who wouldn't, but it's also, I think the artists really appreciate the fact that they're being um, discovered and appreciated and they appreciate hopefully being on national TV and they can tell it's generally because I'm a fan first and foremost, and I discover how cool they are and, Hopefully at that point I stay with them for their career. They come back to me when they want other things talked about, other projects promoted, and I get to be with them uh, for a while, which is the artists you named or examples. I've done a lot with Nora Jones over the years, a lot with Ryan Bingham over the years. I just talked to Jason Mraz last week for his new project, and I had him in studio singing before his first album came out. So stuff like that is so much fun. Do you think you're like, in a way, I mean, I know they're – the A&R people, as they used to be, well, I think they still are artists in repertoire, are the gatekeepers in the music world. It seems to me that you have like that spidey sense. You have a musical spidey sense, I'd right? I'd like, I'd like to think so, and I love that. I love working with the best A&R people over the years, too. People I trust, and if someone, you know, I developed those relationships early on as well at different labels, and if someone will come to me and say, Adam, this is really worth your attention, I know who to trust and who's you know, I, you're, they're telling me the truth. They're not BSing me and I'll take a listen. And it's, it's kind of a mutual partnership at that point. Like, you know what? You're right. Thanks for coming to me first and let's do this. So that's, that's happened many times um, with a lot of great artists. So yeah, it's, it is like the A&R kind of thing. I'd love to, if I wasn't doing this, I'd love to be A&R to label, but it's, I think it's kind of all a partnership and hand in hand along the way, which has been really cool for me. Well, I would think too, I mean, segueing a little bit to the film world, which you're very much involved in, uh, interviewing the likes of Clint Eastwood and Michael Douglas is, and, and Daniel Radcliffe and Celine, you know, people that I talked about a little earlier that I mentioned, yeah. I would imagine that when you interview a, a big star like a Clint Eastwood or a Michael Douglas, that it's a different dynamic in some ways because it's not, we're not talking about a, a musician per se, although Clint Eastwood is actually a, a great jazz musician and an aficionado. Yeah, but yeah. how do you approach, it's like you wear two hats. You have your music hat and your um, entertainment or film actor hat. Uh, mm -hmm. How do you differentiate? Do you, do you go with the same thing? It's about the trust. It's about the knowledge of their career and their background. But then there has to be a difference in the way you approach uh, I think, I mean, you tell me, I mean, you know better than I, but I would think that you're coming at it from a different angle, but I'm sure there are certain things that dovetail together in that dynamic. Yeah. Well, I was lucky enough when I started doing this, I, I kind of had to do everything. And I think anyone that starts, and it's a good experience for everyone to kind of have to do everything. I was dealing with all kinds and stage as well. And I've done theater stuff over the years too. I appreciate live theater and everything. And I do a lot of stuff with jazz musicians, you know, across the board, but 
it, it all feels the same to me to a certain extent. But then when you're actually sitting down across from someone like Clint Eastwood or Michael Douglas, it, there is a different energy and a different vibe. And it's hard. I always, I always take myself out of an interview, especially with someone like that for a, for like one moment in the middle of it. I allow myself that, Oh my God, I'm sitting here. It's Clint Eastwood. <laughs> really right. cool. I have the greatest job in the world. Okay. Back to what we're talking about. I try to find that moment because it makes my job so much more fun. And I never take that stuff for granted. I'm so lucky and it's so cool. I can sit with those kind of people and get their stories and have their attention. Well, that, that's kind of a running thread through many of my, my podcast interviews thus far. When I'm talking to people who have had the real uh, honor and, and rare uh, you know, opportunity to sit down with someone like a Michael Douglas or Daniel Radcliffe, and do you have that pinch yourself moment like, holy crap, I'm talking to Clint Eastwood right now, or I can't believe I'm sitting here with Morrissey, and um, great yeah. artists like that for whom without your passion and love of their art, you wouldn't be as good at, as what you do, but having that passion for it, it also makes you a fan at, at your core. And what do fans do? We're fanatical. We love talking to these folks if we even get the opportunity. And I think that's really a, a rare uh gift that you have to be able to do that and but i think you've nurtured that maybe just how you were brought up everything kind of came together in this perfect way perfectly in sync yeah i've I've been lucky and isn't growing up in la and having parents that were fans of entertainment and kind of nurturing that with me but i've also found with talking to musicians and actors there's most of them like being liked and they can tell when i'm generally interested they can tell when i'm a fan they never you know, they can t- as long as i'm educated and know what i'm talking about they like that enthusiasm obviously as i'm sure you've discovered with other people you've met over the years as well that it's good to have a little bit of that and never lose it also one it becomes boring too i never want to seem like i'm you know more than they do which i you know rarely do so it's nice to be able to show that genuine enthusiasm i think artists of all sorts really appreciate that and it's not a paint by numbers thing for you it's not like, oh, okay, I'm interviewing this uh, music artist. I have to do this, go there, uh, learn about them tonight, and then pretend like I've known about them my whole life. You don't do that. You're no. you're completely authentic from from everything I've seen. And when I look at some of the artists, I love the overlap too with with the music artists who are also in the acting side of things, like a Billy Bob Thornton or Jeff Bridges. Yeah. yeah. What's that like for you? Is that like the perfect scenario for you? <laughs> It's really cool. And those are both just exceptional guys, obviously, that have had amazing careers. And and I think in some ways, both of them like to think of themselves as musicians and music lovers even more than actors, even though it's all kind of tied in. But that that is kind of a dream. S- sitting down with those guys are always some of the coolest experiences. And I've had really special experiences with both of them. Some of my best experiences professionally. And it's great. And I have to, I have, to have my A-game with both of them since both of them are real music lovers themselves and real music aficionados and have to be ready to talk about Frank Zappa and Captain Beefheart and things like that. Right. <laughs> you know, yep. They knew these guys, they know the history. So it's, it's fun. I, I, I like talking to people that know more than I do. Definitely. Well, isn't it cool too, when you talk to people that you may be starstruck at uh, by at first and you just start talking about music and all that artifice just kind of yeah. falls away and you just become like, two people talking about music and then you start going in all these different directions. And that's what I love about what you do. And I know, you know, 
I know that you have, um, there's a local artist named Meg Myers who my wife, Stephanie and I went and saw her years ago yeah. she's playing bass. She's singing so good. And we're like, who is, where did she come from? Like she's amazing. Went backstage and met her. And I remember at the time going, man, if I had money or the talent, I would want to manage her, like figure out how to be part of her career. And now she's gone on to amazing, great things. And I know that you uh, met her early on. Can you talk a little bit about Meg Myers, St. Vincent, Nikki Lane? These are people that, that have been featured on your segments. Yeah, how do you discover talent like that? Great, strong, creative, cool women that I've had the pleasure of, of doing stuff with. Well, with Meg, that goes back to, you know, may she rest in peace, a friend of mine, Angelica Cobb Baylor, Jelly, as she was affectionately known by all her friends, who I knew actually going back to Katy Perry days, who was working with a new artist named Meg Myers. And she sent me something one night, just, just a press release, or maybe it was a note. I don't remember. I remember lying in bed getting a note from her, like, check her out. And I paid attention because it was coming from Jelly, and I was blown away immediately. And she wasn't signed yet. She had put out, I think she was about to put out an EP. And I was just kind of floored by how cool she was and just kind of the raw energy of her. And I said, yeah, we got to do something with Meg. And like, just bring her in. Let's put her on TV. Like, really, really? Like, yeah, let's just put her on TV. So I had her in studio within a few weeks. So when we were shooting at the Grove and she came down there with um, her uh, violin player, Ken, and she, she was playing guitar back then a lot, Meg, and she did her song Monster, which was like her first single and got to know her. And she was just so cool and so different and so real and so excited to be on TV. She was very nervous, but um, hopefully we got past that. I think we did made for a great segment. And then I've covered her every album she's had since then and stayed close with her and She's gone on to do really great things and, you know, playing festivals and just did a great cover of um, Kate Bush's Running Up That Hill that got a lot of attention this last year. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. And she's really cool. Another artist like um, you mentioned, Adia Victoria, who I'm crazy about. She's Nashville based now. She put out an album last year called Silences. Another one. She's someone I think I just kind of caught on my own one day, just kind of surfing around the net when she had a little live thing that was on there that was seemed fresh and new and like no one I'd ever heard before just blending genres. And I wanted to do something with her. So I reached out and found out who was handling her. And I've done a few things with her now over the years. And um, she's just amazing and cool. And St. Vincent, the same way I got to uh, go record shopping with St. Vincent was Annie Clark at Amoeba at the now, now closed, but we'll oh, Amoeba. Yeah. <laughs> so I've been a few shoots like that where I've gone record shopping with people with, with St. Vincent. We did once and took, she took me around and showed me the CD she was buying and turned me on to a few artists, which was a blast. I did that with Khaki King. If you're familiar with Khaki King, it was this amazing guitar player. Um, just really, really cool. I did that kind of shoot with her as well and did her first as well. And she was a blast. Just really great creative talent. And St. Vincent's of course blown up and become a worldwide yeah. Phenomenal. And, and, and I think for a lot of people, you know, I was talking about earlier how you have the opportunity to sit down with amazing talent and about being starstruck and all that, but forget it. You're the idea of going music shopping at Amoeba, <laughs> the artist that you, that you know, and, and appreciate and who likes you. Uh, that to me is the best field trip of all time. Yeah, for sure. Sure. So, no, so much fun. And I remember, you know, she taking me around the different sections, the world music section and into the Beatles. And, you know, she's smart enough too to pick the artists that would tie it into some of the music she was doing at the time and to promote herself as well. And, you know, um, smart lady. So that, that was kind of a blast. And uh, yeah, I have to do a shoot like that again. It's been a little while. It's been oh, a little I, while. I, more I, records. 
Well, isn't that, I love that idea. And on record store day, I used to go down and get to Amoeba at six in the morning so I could get all the best stuff early yeah, on, all the yeah. vinyl albums. And and I know Amoeba will continue. It's just that building was like hallowed sacred ground. And but they'll, they're coming back. So uh, that's and good. But, you love records. I'm jealous of your system. You've always. Oh, come over anytime. We'll, we'll, we'll play some vinyl. Sounds uh, good. So. I want to also talk about something kind of interesting. I always learned something new that I didn't know about people I've known forever. I didn't know you produced and staged live music events with artists, including yeah. Stevie Wonder, Hall & Oates. I love Live from Daryl's House, by the way. Ed <laughs> so Sheeran, yeah. Miranda Lambert, and many others. How look at, look at the diversity of what you're able to do. Again, always coming back to music with you and, and also film and TV and all that. But I just feel like yeah. the fact that you produced and staged live music events, talk about that. Where did, where did that talent well, we come from? Pleasure. It's been a great experience with our show to be able to do live music events through, through Extra. We've been able to do things up at Universal, do things at the Grove, where we'd have built-in audiences of thousands. So we had to get our act together. So um, Ed Sharon, I had had him in studio originally just playing for me acoustic and when before anyone cared and he sang the 18 for me. And that was all, that was all well and good. And I personally appreciated it. And I got him on TV and all that, but of course he blew up pretty quickly after that and to get him back next time to do a performance, it was going to be a much bigger deal and people wanted him out there with a the big crowd. So we had him out there at the Grove. And I remember everyone was so excited. There was a live feed back to extra that day. And we had him in the middle of the Grove there and people just started gathering around. And I think there were, there were thousands of people that showed up and people were just amazed. Who is this guy? Who is this guy? And he'd already developed the following, but he wasn't as well known, you know, in our show at that point still. And it just, it's just a matter of technically dealing with things that I wasn't familiar with. And it's a learning curve as far as live performances in terms of dealing with rentals and backline and tour managers. And cause we're generally putting on a show and that that's, that's another whole skill and something I've, I've enjoyed doing. Um, working with those people and then and, and being a fan out there and watching the show itself and, and getting to be part of that as well is always a blast and they appreciate it. and see, and seeing the artists change because they're, they're delivering a show at that point is different than doing an interview. And I've done a million shoots um, with people where they're performing just right with me one-on-one. -on -one and it's, it's the greatest experience where I can sit down with an artist or someone I've admired and they pull out their guitar and I get to get a private performance and that's a blast, but it's totally different from when they know they're performing for a crowd. And, the energy changes and it's, it's a, it's a lot more work, and a lot more pressure on everybody when that works, which, you know, usually it does at some point, there's always, there's <laughs> always snags, but when that works, it's a great feeling and it looks great on TV. And that's yeah. going to be one of the most highly pressurized environments to stage a live music event. Let's say with Stevie wonder hollow yeah. notes. Well, that's that thankfully it, it, it never falls all on my shoulders. We have always have, there's always great people that are in that, that are better at that than me in terms of making sure things are technically happening. Well, I, I make sure, you know, the artist is happy and their teams are happy and everyone gets there. Then, you know, there's always been great people I work with that make sure things sound good and look good and all the it's group effort, right? Yeah. As long, as long as we're all doing it, that stuff's always a great team. And I've always worked with great people that are, that are better at that stuff than me. I just, I deal with the artists, make sure they're out there and, right. and but, but, you know, make sure we have, Everyone's happy. And there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes to make sure we have the right equipment, make sure the people are happy, make sure the timing all works. That's always an issue. Um, and then, then by the time everything's all set, it, it, it looks and sounds great. But it's usually days of planning and usually a lot of stress on the day of. But it's always worked out. Can you? I want to go back earlier in your life to 
kind of examine or, or dive into a little bit your parents. And, and I, I know that you would go to concerts when you were very young. I, I don't know. I'm getting in my mind that, you know, almost famous where the mom drops <laughs> the young man off uh, yeah. at the concert for Stillwater. She's like, don't take drugs. <laughs> I love you. <laughs> and all that. Did you have that kind of upbringing? Like when did you know? And then when did your, your parents yeah. figure out like, this is Adam's like really smart. He's really into music. Let's nurture those things. How did, yeah. how, how did that develop? Well, I grew up going to like, you know, at the time, this is probably in the seventies. I'd be going to shows of like fifties artists and we'd go see like these fifties. Like now people go to eighties, eighties reviews or even nineties reviews. Back at the time, all these guys from the 50s and women and bands from the 50s were still around. So we'd go to these shows at the Greek or at parks, and I got to see some of the great, the coasters and the drifters and things like that all the time. So those are my first concerts. And those were obviously really talented classic musicians, and that was a blast. So that was my love of live music and a lot of stage stuff. They would take me to the Pantages and the Schubert and Century City and all that kind of stuff. So I did. How old were you at that, at that point? How old? Yeah. Probably, probably from a toddler on. So we'd be out. Our, our park festivals, music festivals, my, my, to this day, they're both still kicking. And, you know, things are strange right now, obviously, for the world. But they, they didn't like to sit and, and be at home. So we'd be at a, some kind of show every weekend, either an outdoor festival, either, usually not kid music. Usually it was some kind of cool 50s review or some cool rocker or something like that. So I had that love of live entertainment early on. And then I started getting into bands and things like that. To this day, my dad has a story of when I was six, he was trying to get me kiss tickets. He said he waited in line at the sports arena to get me kiss tickets, and they sold out right before he got up to the window. So I, uh. is that true? I don't know. I, but he said he gave it a shot. So I didn't get to see Kiss back then. I've got to see them and interview them many times since then, which is great. But I've told them that story as well, that my dad said he waited in the line at the sports arena. I was six years old and a young Kiss fan, but didn't get to go to what I think was the <laughs> maybe the Love Gun tour. But in any case... Um, my first concert I went to, I think on my own, the first real rock concert was Sparks with Translator opening at the Greek Theater in October 83. And we went with a friend of my mom's who was like a young 20-something kind of thing. It took me and my best buddy, Will. And you mentioned the drug reference with Almost Famous. <laughs> yeah. I remember that one of the first times I was out there in a crowd and smelled, you know, pot around me at a show. Like, what is this? I remember the woman who took us actually admitted to to using it at the time when I was 12. I thought this was the, the biggest deal in the world. I was at some crazy place and oh my God, I'm a, I'm a rocker now. So I remember that that very vividly at that Spark show in 83. But yeah, I just grew up going to see live music all the time. And then into my teen years, I would go drive over the hill once I can drive and go into the Roxy and the Whiskey and Variety Arts Center downtown and there were lots of great clubs and I'd, I'd be out all the time once I can and drive. And I remember the, the universal amphitheater when it first opened, when it was yeah. open air. Right, and, right, right. And I remember seeing Jesus Christ superstar. I had my, my aunt Sylvia took me to see Jesus Christ superstar. And if people don't know, I mean the, the universal amphitheater was an open outdoor yeah. amphitheater. Then they enclosed it and became the Gibson. Now it's gone. So it's Harry Potter world. Yeah, you know the Wizarding World of Harry Potter, but a lot of great memories in those venues. Do you think that those, you know, I talk, I love architecture, and I think that some of those venues have a soul 
especially the ones yeah. that are still there, like the Will Turn, the Ace Hotel, the theater there. Do you have certain venues that that yeah. speak to you? I know the Greek is such a great venue. Hollywood Bowl, obviously, although much bigger and harder to get to than the yeah. than the Greek. <laughs> yeah. Although, wait, I take that back. They're both kind of difficult to get to, but people seek those places out. But you mentioned the Roxy and some of the other mm-hmm. you know, Troubadour and th- the thing about living in LA, we take a lot of these venues for granted, but we are surrounded by or the the remnants of uh, formerly uh, iconic venues. How did that play into your whole musical development? Just the venues themselves. What yeah. impact did that have? Obviously, the artists do, but what about the venues? No, for sure. That's that's so interesting to bring that up because yeah, those those places always have meant so much to me too. And you mentioned Universal Amphitheater, and I remember seeing so many great shows at Universal and getting dropped off as a young teen, and you know, getting picked up at eleven o'clock whether the show was done or not. I'd be out there in the Valley area next to Victoria Station to get picked up for my folks. <laughs> I got XX and the Tubes and Joe Jackson. My first REM show was at Universal, and I love that that theater and then the greek has always been one of the greatest places in town to see a show and everyone should go at least once a summer to in la to see a show at the greek theater i know other cities have similar venues but that's always been amazing and so many great memories at the greek theater and as far as the clubs i've always loved personally i've been a big fan of mccabe's guitar shop in santa monica and i've been going to show yeah since i was in high school to see everybody from the folk folkier side of things to um, to Steve Wynn from the Dream Syndicate when he first started off as a solo artist and um, Firehose and Thelonious Monster and the Meat Puppets, the punk bands would play there back in the 80s. Yeah. I got to see Allen Ginsberg read poetry there and McCabe's just still going strong. Even though I just read this week that their uh, owners are retiring, but I think the place is still muddling and doing their best through dealing with what everyone's dealing with right now. But um, love McCabe's and I love Largo. Um, there's a Largo on, at the Coronet that's been around for a while now at La Cienega, but the original Largo on Fairfax was somewhere I'd be at probably every other week to see John Bryan's Friday night shows and Brett Miller and Fiona Apple years ago. And it's such a great old school nightclub. And LA has always been such a great place for shows. I still go to the Roxy and Troubadour, of course. I've done so many shoots there and seen so many great artists there. And you feel that history at the Troubadour every time you, you walk Don't in the you, door. Don't you, though, you feel that history. I remember seeing Dire Straits at the Roxy front yeah. row well front row it's not a row it's <laughs> at a table at the front and we didn't really know who the, i mean making movies had just come out yeah wow. and romeo and juliet was the big hit off there but we didn't really know that much about them or mark knopfler but it was you know mark knopfler david knopfler pick withers oh, yeah. i mean just a great lineup in that band and then joe you mentioned joe jackson i remember mm-hmm. seeing joe jackson at the palladium yeah. uh and just just to be in LA, and I'm sure other places around the country and around the world, everybody has stories like this where the venue, I mean, like I forget things that happened yesterday, but I remember seeing Howard Jones, I think it was at the Greek, <laughs> yeah. it might have been the Universal Life Theater, but seeing Howard Jones, and I thought Howard Jones was a country act. I, <laughs> we, You know, he's one of the right. greatest like new wave artists, but at the time, yeah. never heard of him. He was opening for... I don't know if it was for Elvis Costello and the attractions or uh-huh. somebody like that. And I remember seeing squeeze. They yeah. opened for Elvis Costello uh, at the LA sports arena. We didn't know who squeeze was. And then we walked out there going, but you know, we got to buy a squeezes albums and differed in Tilbrook, some of the greatest songwriters ever. So I know yeah. you have similar stories like that. 
Yeah, constantly. I, that, that's always been so much fun to be able to go to, especially with Squeeze I saw last year um, at the Orpheum, another great theater. But yeah, and to see Joe Jackson back in the in the 80s, a couple albums in, and just what a talent he is. And and I used to love discovering opening acts, and, and I love to get there early to see these opening acts. Usually, especially back then, they were artists picked. So there's a reason they're on the bill, and I'd go out the next day and want to get the record or the first weekend that followed, I'd go to the record store and buy stuff or send away. Cause everything back then you'd have to send away for, and I, right. you know, I get the record, I, you know, I collected way too many posters. I want to, I want to jump a little bit into something that I I'm, when I'm looking at your, your career and I talk to a lot of people about this is mentorship or people that mentored you. Mm-hmm. And I know David Sheehan, if you want to give a little background, he, this gentleman, a legend, a, a yeah. legendary entertainment reporter, and then other names like Jerry Dunphy and Paul Moyer and Kelly Lang, Trisha right, Toyota, right. Linda Alvarez, and of course, Dr. George Fishback, the weatherman who I always loved growing up, and Keith right. Morrison. What was it like to be around these icons of broadcast I can't in the early how days? Cool that was. And as I get older, I just realized how fortunate I was. These are people I grew up with as a kid watching on TV. Everyone watched local news even more so then than now, as you know. And and now the best you know, the best association you have with something like that is like the movie Anchorman. That there was actually a world that was like that. Obviously not to that extreme, but these are what these newsrooms were like. And people and but these were really talented news people and real journalists that all came from great backgrounds. And to be there working with these anchors and with these writers, and to see them do what they do. And most of them are really nice people that like to foster young people and to work with. Some of these people were just amazing. And, and Fritz Coleman and Linda Alvarez, these people, Trisha Toyota, I grew up watching Trisha Toyota. And to be in a newsroom with Trisha Toyota, one of the nicest women I've ever met and people I've ever met, was just a blast. And looking back at all that, to see how fortunate I was to be able to, to see how they work and just, just most of the time just by watching what they do. Rarely did someone tell me what to do, but just watching them work and being in an edit bay with someone, a lot of the times all night long, and watching their judgment and how to edit a story what should work and what doesn't work when to say no what you know what ends up on the cutting room floor was just great education for me and with david in particular david you know and he's he's still kicking and going strong and some of our old specials and things are on amazon right now you can look up some of our old shows he was just an amazing force of nature that didn't stop he hardly slept <laughs> it, it, it's hard <laughs> keeping up with him but i was working seven days a week with him for a couple of years there, even at the beginning and to be able to do that, just the way that shaped who I was as a producer and a writer can't really be under undersold. He was just the, just the best. And uh, I learned so much from him, but in some ways things were really colorful and really a lot like the Anchorman scenario. And I can tell you stories, <laughs> yeah. but I, I won't. Well, that'll be something over drinks one day, but um, yeah, I got to see a lot. Of, there was still at the end, this was in the early nineties, but, a lot of things were the same as they were at that point from back from the eighties and seventies and hadn't changed. And the world's changed a lot since then, thankfully, but I got to see a lot of what uh, old school newsroom ways were like. Well, do you think that's, I mean, I think that served you well, right? You, you had one foot in the old school broadcast journalism world, which for local news is still relatively of that model. Yeah. Five o'clock yeah. news, the five thirty news with the people that we see every day for me, Growing up, and and for anyone listening in Southern California, the names I named earlier, like a Jerry Dunphy, 
Yeah. You know, from the desert to the sea to all of Southern, Southern California, California, a good evening. That was his wonderful sign on, you know, that was yeah. his mantra. That was his, I don't know. We just grew up with that. Right. And if I were to meet Jerry Duffy, have had to meet, had the opportunity to meet someone like that back in the day. I talk about starstruck, right? And Paul Moyer fun. and Kelly Lang. You're so, I think it's so amazing for you to be able to work and Dr. George, all these folks, how cool to get to, to do that. I'd love sitting there at maybe 11 o'clock in the newsroom or something, waiting for my piece to get on in the channel two newsroom and channel four newsroom. And I'd call my mom or something on the phone. Cause she, I started to get used to it. And I'm like, Oh, um, Dr. George just walked back in the newsroom. She's like, oh, my God, really? He's right there with you? I'm like, yeah, Mom, this is who I work with. And then I feel that excitement again. And that kind of never left. It was a blast. And, you know, Jerry Dumpy, just, we just had dinner on the table there together. He's a regular guy. Oh, my God. <laughs> so, so much fun. So much fun. Oh, that I, I love hearing about this. I think it all, if 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 everyone listens to this and they, they start seeing a pattern, it's that you're kind of melding. You grew up in a time where you got to experience the old school, but you also have adapted obviously so well to the new school. But I think having that grounding in that traditional broadcast journalism, plus the years of going out and buying albums, you know, pre, not that we're that old, but pre streaming music and MP3s kind of the tactile uh, emotional romanticized version of both news and music, the way we consumed it, the way we went out to clubs. And by the way, people do that today. And I love that people love music in whatever form it comes. If you love music, go for it. I just like Adam, how you, you have this depth and breadth of experience that is completely unique to you, your experience, where you grew up, your parents, who you've worked with, the mentors you've had. It's just really cool to learn more about you and, and get a real flavor for what your incredible career is like and will obviously flourish and continue into the future. So I, I, I really appreciate you being here today. Well, this has been a real treat. And I, I, I you know, I love, I love talking to you and I love, I love everything that you've been about and your love and passion for, for film and music is unparalleled as well. So it's a, it's a real honor and treat to talk to you today. Well, Adam, is it, where can people find you if, if you want to be found? <laughs> where, where can people, are you on the so, social media? What shows you, you know, I know you work for extra TV. Yeah. How can people find you? What should they be looking out for uh, going yeah. forward? As far as professionally, my segments are on extra. I have my music segment. You can see on extra um, usually two or three times a month. You look for uh, on extra TV. You can go on extra TV.com. And search my name, Adam Weisler, and see a lot of my segments are there archived. And or just look for me. Check your check your local extra listings. You can see me on TV. Usually my on camera music segments are on the weekend show, but I'm also a lot of my stuff is online. And I'm on all the socials. You can go at Adam Extra on Twitter, at Adam Extra on Instagram. You can find me on Facebook, Adam Weisler. Um, I'm out there, and you can you can watch a lot of my music pieces, which I'm really proud of. Are all kind of hovering in different places. I highly recommend everyone seek out Adam Weisler. I'm so glad to have you on the podcast. Many screens, big picture for Comscore today. And I just want to make a deal with you. When things clear up and we go to a concert together, let's do that. And then we'll come home and listen to music on vinyl yeah. <laughs> and uh, discover some new music together, perhaps. But I, I definitely want to want to do that, Adam. That sounds like one of the, the greatest invitations I've had, considering the way things are right now. Let's make that one of the first things we do after all this. I'm, I'm really looking forward. A hundred percent, Adam. Thank you so much for being here. I'll talk to you soon. I'll see you soon, I hope.
Definitely. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you, Adam. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.